So, Alistair, you know, I was reviewing some interesting literature from Swan and Flanders, and I think I've, I've schemed out a couple of CT laws myself. Uh, care to hear them? Praveen, you know they weren't scientists, right? But uh, never mind. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> the first law of cardiac CT is plaque makes risk and risk makes plaque. Plaque makes risk and risk makes plaque. Very good. The second law of cardiac CT is that blood cannot itself pass from one vessel to a tighter vessel. Well, well, actually, hold on. I'm not too sure about this one. I know it's got something to do with mass and momentum, thermodynamics, I think. Well, Praveen, it's because plaque is risk and risk's a curse. And all the risk in the universe is ultimately going to cool down. Yeah, that's, that's entropy, man. Oh, oh, dear. Okay, why don't we flush these laws out offline and can spare our listeners any additional anguish here. Uh, well said, Praveen. Okay, let's move on. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Donut of Destiny, the podcast on all things cardiac CT for anyone interested in cardiovascular imaging. My name is Praveen Ranganath with radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital in the United States. And I'm Alastair Moss, a cardiologist in Leicester in the UK. And today we are joined by our esteemed guest, a titan in the field of cardiac CT, hailing from Vancouver, Canada, Professor Jonathan Leipzig. Professor Leipzig is a professor of radiology and cardiology at the University of British Columbia and is well known to our audience as a past president of the Society of Cardiovascular CT, who has a prolific record of research in cardiac CT and structural heart disease, ranking in the top 1% of the most impactful scientists by the of science. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure, a real honor. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for joining us, Jonathan. It will be great to have your expert insight in our discussion today. And Praveen, what will we be discussing today? All right. Well, guys, since the dinosaurs have roamed the earth to pretty much as recently as the early 2010s, we've held very tightly to a very linear relationship between coronary stenoses and ACS events. We've previously thought that a nebulous and vicious cycle of atherosclerosis caused a progressive narrowing of the coronaries, and as these stenoses worsened, more adverse events occurred. However, some more recent data are challenging this claim. Many patients with seemingly innocuous, non-obstructive stenoses go on to have adverse events. So, what gives? Right, Praveen, we are in the midst of a paradigm shift in our understanding of atherosclerosis. It may not be the degree of stenosis, but rather the burden and the composition of the plaque itself that predicts future plaque rupture events. Excellent. So we will break down our conversation into two parts. The first will focus on the established data behind CT plaque characterization. The second part will focus on critiques cutting-edge techniques, and speculations for the future of this field. Right then, gentlemen, let's get to it. Okay, so Jonathan, you know, a lot of older CAT studies and really even the more recent PROMISE and Scott Hart data support the association between stenosis severity and future events. Other recent data do show that a significant proportion of patients with non-obstructive stenoses go on to have adverse events. Can you help us reconcile these two seemingly conflicting points? 
Well, that's such a great question, and it's uh, such an exciting topic. I've really been privileged to witness this evolution of our understanding over the last decade, as you mentioned. And really, it's been a rebirth that the discussion following the uh, data from John Ambrose and many others from the late 80s and 90s, now reflecting on what we've learned about atherosclerosis and our understanding of the interplay between atherosclerosis and risk. And you know, I would like to think of it as not either or. I think the message I take from the evolving data from modern trials and modern studies that involve cardiac CT is, is not that stenosis doesn't matter. I think we shouldn't conflate the data to suggest that. Because we saw even recently as last year, David Marin presents an analysis done by Harmony Reynolds from the ischemia trial highlighting that the extent and severity of anatomical stenosis on CT closely related and predicted uh, incident mortality. So severe coronary disease is still a problem. And if you have high-grade stenosis, you're still at risk, not to mention the potential relationship between stenosis and physiology and symptoms. But I think to me, what's, what I've really learned over the years is more not so much that stenosis is irrelevant, but that non-stenotic atherosclerosis is highly relevant. And that when we identify non-stenotic atherosclerosis and leave it unchecked, leaving it the opportunity to progress at varied rates, we leave the patient exposed to an increased risk of incident myocardial infarction. So I, I think that the data is really just providing us a deeper understanding, uniquely non-invasively, and being able to more elaborately and to a greater extent identify not only the presence of non-stenotic plaque, but also its plaque morphology. And Jonathan, do you think it's it's the total atheroma burden that's the issue here, or is it actually specific types of plaque composition which is going to be the key marker for grading people's risk as we as we delve deeper into this data? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, Alistair. What I believe that total atherosclerotic burden is probably highly relevant, and we saw this just recently as it relates to the West Danish Heart Registry, which I know we'll delve into in a bit, just published in December as it relates to calcium scoring. Really, frankly, the most crude non-invasive CT measure of atherosclerotic burden, really uh, not even focusing at all on the presence of non-calcified plaque, never mind describing the morphology of it. And the reason I think that is, is we've learned from the Paradigm data set, which we've participated in from Hyakje Chang's lab, and as well as Iconic, is that there's obviously a relationship, a correlation between the extent of plaque as well as the presence of adverse plaque. And I think more important even than the plaque at baseline, I think what we see when we interrogate patients with CT is we have some insight into their extent of atherosclerosis as at least somewhat of a predictor of whether or not they're going to be plaque progressors. And as we saw from Sadako Moriyama and Jaganarula's data, the 10-year follow-up of their seminal work in Jack, which they published in 2015, that it's really plaque progression that, of course, as you both know, is uh, needed for patients to experience incident myocardial infarction. I don't think patients go from 20% stenosis to myocardial infarction. I think what happens, of course, and as we see from the invasive literature, is that there's some signal of progression and then either rapid progression and also rupture and atherothrombotic occlusion or some spectrum of that. But I think it's really total atheroma burden that really provides us so, so much in the way of richness of information. And Jonathan, when you, when you talk about plaque progression, are you thinking more along the lines of an increasing burden of the non-calcified plaque? Because we see that in patients, obviously, who are put onto statins, there's this phenotypic transformation where 
you will get a greater increase in your calcified plaque, and that's obviously reflecting in your calcium score. But do you think it's the non-calcified plaque, which is they're the that's the marker of non of rapid plaque progression? Uh, it's a great question, and you know I'm I'm sure you've seen an analysis done by two of our former team members, Jonathan Weir McCallus, obviously now with you in the UK, and Han Young Jin from uh, Korea. And we looked at the Paradigm data set, and we looked at the relationship between calcified plaque and total plaque volume, and then looked at the serial follow-up study and looked at the progression of calcium as it relates to the total plaque volume. And you hit on such an important point. Why calcium works at baseline in statin-naive patients is because there's a fairly consistent relationship between the totality of calcified plaque and the totality of total plaque saying total a lot. But the bottom line is, if you have a lot of calcified plaque, chances are you have a lot of plaque in general. I think once you have someone on a statin, what we see is there's a disparate pattern of progression. There are patients, who, for example, who have may, may have an increase in their total calcified plaque volume, and that may outstrip the rate of overall plaque progression. And I think that's a protective phenomenon, as we saw in Jonathan Weir McCall's paper in, in, in Jack Imaging, highlighting that in those patients, there may be plaque conversion, stabilization, and a reduction in overall plaque progression. On the other hand, if you have increasing calcium, but the rate of total plaque progression outstrips the rate of the calcium progression, which is what we see in plaque progressors, for example, not on statins, that's actually a hazardous situation because it reflects you know, an increase in overall plaque burden. So I think that obviously treatment strategies need to be reflected on as we particularly look at not only the baseline imaging, but if we consider serial testing to understand a response to treatment, as you mentioned. So Jonathan, we've been going through several different methods of qualifying and quantifying plaque thus far, including things as rudimentary as calcium scoring to more complicated semi-automatic or even manual quantitation of total atheroma burden, non-calcified atheroma burden, et cetera. To help focus in this conversation a little bit, let's focus on some of the studies we've also mentioned too, Iconic and the Western Denmark study. You were an investigator on both of these studies, correct? Yes. So with regards to the Western Denmark registry specifically, I wanted to focus in on initially the discussion on calcium scoring and its implication for adverse events thereafter. Just as a quick reminder for our listeners, the Western Denmark Heart Registry study is a longitudinal cohort study, is obviously based in Denmark, that followed almost 25,000 patients over nearly 10 years. So there's a recent... CT sub-analysis that came out of the registry published in JAK from 2020. It shows that there's a stepwise relationship between adverse events and two different metrics, both coronary calcium score and the extent of obstructive vessel burden. Not really all that surprising, but when you adjust for the calcium score, the presence of obstructive stenoses don't have an incremental value in predicting adverse events. Can you break down that understanding of obstructive stenosis, calcium score, and then we'll kind of go into calcified plaque burden thereafter in the Western Denmark Heart Registry. Yeah, of course. First of all, I, I would like to commend my friends in, in Denmark, particularly a close collaborator, Bjarne Norgard, who's really, along with Dr. Mortensen and many others in, in Denmark, really taught us so much from this incredible registry that's been put together now over a decade ago. My learnings from this paper are very much aligned with, I think, what we've just been talking about. We know that the overall plaque burden and the presence of stenosis are obviously correlated. And so in any analysis, an observational study, 
even with statistical analysis separating the two, there's obviously a relationship. If you have more calcium, as was shown very elegantly in the analysis, if you had a calcium score of greater than 1,000, the rate of stenotic disease was much higher. So again, I think what we see is that calcium score, and we've known this for many, many years, even from large registries from Matt Budoff and others, that the more calcium you have, the more likely you are to have a stenosis. I think what we're seeing is, is that patients that have more atherosclerosis are at higher risk of having an event. I think, though, we should probably not extend so far as to say that high-grade stenoses are not a determinant of an event, independent even of plaque burden. And the reason I say that is I think CT, when we look at the stenosis grades, we're talking about fairly crude measures, right? 50%, 70% at very best. And the reproducibility of those thresholds of real-world stenosis are modest, not to mention the fact that the anatomical location, as well as the number of vessels with stenotic disease, is not also reflected in that analysis. So the focus to me is less on the relevance or lack of relevance of stenosis, but more the relevance of total plaque. And I've seen over the course of my practice a real shift from the early days where we would identify atherosclerosis and my clinical colleagues would simply say, well, isn't atherosclerosis just an element of aging to a real paradigm shift to appreciate that particularly when we see it prematurely, when we feel it's more extensive than we would think for a patient of that age and sex, that that disease process, if left unchecked, is exactly the disease that causes incident myocardial infarction. And so I think this data sort of aligns with that. It fits in nicely with the amazing work from Scott Hart, the amazing work that's been put together over the years from my friends and colleagues through the Confirm Registry, that atherosclerosis, when identified on CT, is not incidental, right? It is the disease that, that potentially causes downstream events. And Jonathan, I guess what's interesting about the West Denmark data and, you know, as you highlighted, the data that came out of Scott Hart was that there wasn't really an incremental value in detecting obstructive disease over and above calcium score in terms of predicting MI and cardiovascular death. But we know from the US-based PROMISE trial that actually there was some substantial incremental value of stenosis over calcium score in predicting events. So it's how do we try and reconcile this data? I mean, does stenosis add anything in your mind over calcium score or is actually for risk prediction calcium score enough in itself? Yeah, I absolutely think uh, stenosis adds over and above. And I think it obviously adds not only as it relates to prognosis, but clearly as it relates to treatment management and and also uh, angina management. You know, we've seen, especially from the invasive physiology world, that leaving stenotic disease in the setting of abnormal physiology leaves the patient exposed to increased not only unplanned urgent revask, but also uh, myocardial infarction. We've learned from the ischemia trial, even without physiology support, but certainly would probably be augmented with physiology guidance, that revascularization improves angina and quality of life over and above medical therapy alone and reduces spontaneous MI in the ischemia trial. And if we look at the recent meta-analysis from uh, Sripal Bangalore published in Circulation, that signal is clear across many, many studies. So I think we, we're, we're doing a coronary CTA for two reasons. First is to help identify whether or not the patient, whether their symptoms may be related to coronary disease, stenosis in particular, and with the complementary role of non-invasive physiology to better understand whether that lesion is actually causing abnormal physiology such that the patient will derive a benefit 
from revascularization, both a quality of life and potentially MI reduction. And then the second reason is, of course, to titrate medical therapy. And I think what's interesting about the West Danish Heart Study is that, you know, I, like many people, have been very excited about the opportunities for total quantitative plaque volume and really understanding that and the morphology of plaque, as we've discussed. But at the end of the day, perhaps simple scores such as segment involvement score, the no, you know, the number of segments, or even a calcium score may be enough to then provide some insight beyond the revascularization decision-making around medical therapy. And it's funny, what goes around comes around, as they say, you know, Leslie Shaw published a paper in 2012 from Confirm in Journal of Nuclear Cardiology. And in that study, this was very early days, and what we looked at and what she published was that if you had non-stenotic disease on the CT, what really determined risk when we didn't have these quantitative measures of plaque was really the calcium score. So again, maybe we want to look into whether we can identify the vulnerable plaque, whether we can use hemodynamic forces and plaque morphology to better refine that. But at the end of the day, it, it, it was quite fascinating for me to see that just the good old-fashioned calcium score was a good measure of total plaque burden. Yeah, this is great. It's interesting to think that such a simplistic idea like the Agatston calcium scoring can be so predictive of risk eventually. We've also mentioned some of the more complex methods of evaluating plaque morphology and plaque volume. I wanted to get into that a little bit too. In addition to talk about, you've already referred to the confirm registry, I, f I feel like Discussing Iconic now would be a nice time. Uh, as a brief refresher to the audience, Iconic is aimed at identifying atherosclerotic precursors of acute coronary syndromes from CTA data. It was actually a nested investigation in that huge confirmed registry, which in, in itself was an international longitudinal cohort study for patients that had undergone coronary CTs. Iconic itself also was large. It was like 20,000 patients worth of data that we have. The results with regards to Iconic were initially published in Jack back in 2018. Jonathan, let's talk about how plaque was analyzed in Iconic, more specifically focusing on the morphologic features, and then what your key takeaways from that Iconic study were. For sure. Well, first of all, I, I have to give kudos to Jim Min for his vision to really put Confirm together and then build on it with Iconic and then the amazing plaque segmentation work led by Hyukje Chang at, at Yonsei University Medical Center in Korea. And so Hyukje's team, you know, put painstaking hours, an incredible amount of time and effort into quantitating plaque using the Meta software. And as you mentioned, it's a nested registry of the confirmed database of patients who've experienced and then patients who uh, matched to patients who did not experience myocardial infarction. I think it's really important to recognize that these patients were very carefully matched by age and sex, sight, as well as the extent and severity of quantitative plaque. So, you know, all the discussion we talked about, about the total plaque burden really being very relevant, and even perhaps even on a simplistic level based on calcium score, that most of the findings that came out of Iconic then, therefore, were in the context of we had a, a man that had a heart attack and a man that didn't. But those men were matched actually based on the total quantitative plaque volume. So it really allowed us to explore morphological differences between those who did and did not experience myocardial infarction. And what we found was similar to that was, was shown by Udo Hoffman back in the day and by Jagan Narula and Sadako Morayama and many others that the positive remodeling and low-density plaque, particularly the necrotic core, was much more commonly found in both the lesions that caused incident myocardial infarction as well as the patients who experienced it. 
In addition, if we looked at the actual culprit lesions, they were usually non-stenotic at the baseline CT. And so I think the messages from Iconic very much align with everything we've spoken about, is that when you normalize for total plaque volume, because I think total plaque is probably a key determinant, because if you have more total plaque, you're more likely to have more low-density plaque. But once you normalize for those, these plaque features may be predictive of patients at risk. And it also highlights that the culprits that we identified were largely non-stenotic at baseline. Again, not meaning that stenotic disease is relevant, but what it does mean is that if you have patients that have non-stenotic plaque, particularly if they have adverse plaque features, and if they're left to progress, their atherosclerosis to progress, if they're not treated aggressively, there's an increased hazard for incident myocardial infarction. Excellent. Uh, I think this has really been a spectacular review of the data on characterizing plaque morphology by CT. Why don't we take a break and end the first part of our conversation here? We can pick up the second part of our conversation next time, at which time we can focus on critiques, the technical components, and the future perspectives of this technology. Right, Praveen. Stay tuned, listeners, for part two of our conversation on the next episode of the podcast. And remember, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us. This is the Donut of Destiny. Cheers. Cheers.